We have certainly enjoyed exalting Jesus Christ, our King, in song today, and now we exalt him by turning to the Word of God today and seeing Jesus for who he is as our Savior, as the one who was sent by God, as the Son of God and God himself, the Word incarnate, as we have studied the book of John and seen that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. I invite you today to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 12. We are now what we would say, I guess, a little over the halfway point uh, in our study of the book of John as we've looked at 11 chapters and we have 21 total to go. Uh, And so now um, we begin to turn, as we we talked about last time, we begin to turn the focus of the book of John, turns from everything that that Jesus has done, and it turns now towards to what he will do near the end of the book of John uh, in the crucifixion when he will die to take away the sins of the world. And so much of the book of John is given to what we call the Passion Week, uh, the week leading up uh, to Jesus' crucifixion. And we saw that last time at the end of chapter 11, uh, people were gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And so now as, as they begin to wonder, uh, where, would Jesus show up because of the, the nature of, of how people uh, viewed Jesus, especially the religious leaders and their, their plans to kill Jesus, uh, we see what happens here. The first part of John chapter 12, we talk about this idea today of love and hate that's seen in this passage. I invite you to follow along as we read all the first 11 verses of John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lord, thank you for the time we have set aside in our service now over these next several minutes to look at your word today, to study it together, and to seek to apply it to our hearts and lives. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would use the Word of God today in our lives to show us what you need us to see. For some who may hear this today, they may, see, they may need to see their need of a Savior to place their complete and total trust in you and you alone for their eternity. For others today who know you as Savior, uh, perhaps you have uh, continued to, to show them uh, a sin or a specific thing that you are calling them uh, to do, maybe a ministry, a service, a next step in their spiritual walk, and, and, and they have not done that yet. Lord, I pray today that you would again, in your grace, convict them of these things and draw them closer to yourself. We ask that 
what is said here over these next few minutes would honor you and glorify you and lift you up. May I not get in the way of the work that you want to do through your word in our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we now turn the calendar and begin to roll into fall, I have some news that you have probably already noticed. Football season is back. Now, for some, that's a time of rejoicing. For others of you in this room, perhaps you've already started counting down the days when football will go away again, and you'll be able to go on about your everyday life. And whether you're a football fan or not, one of the things you'll notice is that these games will elicit some rather strong emotions from people. I don't know if you've ever uh, taken the time as you watch one of these games to watch the fans that are there, right? And the ways they go. You go, yes, some of you go, I live with one. You should see the things. We're not even at the game, right? It is amazing the lengths that some people will go to in an effort to support their team. It is also equally astounding how upset some people will be when their team loses or how vicious their hatred will be of, of a rival team. Our reactions to experiences, situations, actions, and more reveal ultimately what's going on in our hearts, in our inner beings. And with Jesus, this is, it is the same way. What you say and do reveals what is going on in your heart. And here's the thing. The message of who Jesus is and what he has done evokes strong reactions out of people. John shows us all throughout his gospel, we've seen it, the, the reactions that people have to Jesus. And he shows the, the contrast of these reactions. There are those who accepted Jesus and those who rejected him. There are those who embraced him and expressed their belief in him. And there are those who opposed him in any way they could. And once again in this passage, he shows us a great contrast as we see the actions of those who love Jesus and those who hate him. And what we're going to see here in this passage is that love for God is expressed by those who believe in him by their acts of obedience and worship. You cannot profess love for God and love for Jesus Christ without there being a tangible outward expression of that love. It's natural. This is not, and by the way, that those acts do not save you from your sin. They are a result of the salvation that Jesus Christ does. And we see that the actions of love and obedience or contempt and hostility reveal the condition of my heart and what I believe about Jesus. The actions don't constitute the belief or the rejection, they're just the fruit of the belief or the rejection. On Wednesday night, we were uh, beginning our conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount study we've had the last couple of summers, and we were talking about uh, um, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 about false teachers, and he said, you will know them by their fruits. You look at the fruits of their lives. In the same way, you and I, we look at the fruits that come out of our lives, and they show us what do we believe about ourselves, about God, about Jesus Christ, our relationship to him. And you're going to see here in this passage that we've just read, the greatest, fo- the, the, the greatest of our focus here is, is on Mary uh, and her expression of love, but we see also the expressions uh, of hatred and, and, and rejection that others show towards Jesus. So in verses 1 through 3 of John chapter 12, we see this beautiful expression of love that takes place. And before we jump into that, we need to see the event that's going on in verses 1 and 2. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. 
So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining, uh, one of those reclining with him at table. The Sanhedrin, that ruling body uh, of, uh, of the Jews, that primarily religious ruling body, was not unclear in their stance regarding Jesus. They viewed him as an enemy, one who deserved to die lest they lose their power and influence. And we talked about that at length last time as we wrapped up John chapter 11. So therefore, because they viewed Jesus as a threat, because they viewed him as one that needed to be put to death, they had deputized all of those who were coming into Jerusalem to observe the Passover. They, had, they were seeking that, that all of those, who, anyone who knew where he was would report that they could arrest him. And while those preparations for the Passover continued and the people were looking for Jesus, we, we saw that many of them were curious about where he was, uh, we see now exactly where he is. He has once again come to this city of Bethany and he's in the presence of his friends. John tells us that it's six days before the Passover that Jesus is here. Now, it's interesting to note that John presents Bethany as the city where Lazarus was. It is not hard to imagine that Lazarus has become Bethany's most famous resident, right? When you uh, die and are subsequently resurrected four days later, that tends to happen, right? That, oh, that's the city where Lazarus is from. You, you know Bethany. You've heard of that before. If you haven't, you've heard of Lazarus before. In response to Jesus' work in Lazarus' life, we see that they're holding a dinner here in Jesus' honor. In verse 2, when you read there, they were holding uh, this dinner. So they gave a dinner for him. That him is referring to Jesus. It's interesting that while the religious leadership of Israel seeks Jesus' arrest and wants the masses to assist them in this search, Jesus' friends instead are gathering to honor and thank him for what he has done in their lives. Jesus has done an incredible thing for them, and they want to express their love and appreciation for him. We notice here uh, that the scriptures tell us that Lazarus reclines at the table with Jesus. And just to help us understand contextually here, uh, that's how things were done in this culture. You and I, when we go over to someone's house, uh, we're probably going to sit at the table and eat dinner with them. But, but in this culture, in this setting, uh, instead of sitting, what people would do is they would lean on one elbow with their heads towards a low U-shaped t- table and their feet were, were out behind. They're really almost like laying down as they, as they partook of dinner and conversation together. And so here, John in his gospel now begins to parallel the synoptic gospels, and from them we learn other information. Matthew and Mark record information that takes place at this dinner that Jesus is at. This dinner, which is the main meal of the day, would have included much time for leisurely conversation. And we learn that it was not held at the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Instead, Matthew, in, in, his, in chapter 26 of his gospel, and Mark, and Mark in chapter 14 of his gospel, tells us that this dinner was held at the home of someone known as Simon the leper. And I think it's interesting uh, that that name, Simon the leper, stuck with him because what we presume is that Simon is no longer a leper. We, we presume he's probably been healed by Jesus at some point, though it's not recorded in the scripture uh, that this happened. Uh, because if he was still a leper, he would be looked at as unclean and would have been, had to live outside the city. He definitely wasn't hosting people in his home, right? 
And so here you have Simon the leper. And, and again, I think that's funny that, that that's still how people think of him because what would you call Lazarus? Lazarus the, the not dead, you know, or Lazarus the resurrected. Uh, you have these guys who, who both have now assume, uh, presumably been affected by Jesus in their life hosting this dinner. And then you also have Jesus and his disciples. So you have at least 15 people who are around the table uh, for this meal. Now, we don't know if there's any other people there, um, but we do know, based on the culture, uh, that there would not have been any women at the table because it was considered improper for them to recline in public with men at the table during this time. However, that doesn't mean there are no women present there in the home because we read, John here records there are two very well-known women who were there. And the first one we, we came across was in verse 2. Martha is there in the home. And although the dinner is not held in her home, we see her doing what she is seen doing in other passages. She is actively serving other people. Martha is quite an active person. In fact, she is distracted even at times by the things that, that she felt needed to be done. In Luke chapter 10, you, you see this passage that takes place of Martha and Mary. And Martha is just very busy and distracted by things that she feels like has to be done in the, while, while Jesus is there uh, in their home. But at the same time, this, distract, this thing that sometimes became a distraction is also a great testimony of who Martha was. She was very concerned about being actively involved in whatever was going on in that moment. That spirit and that heart should be the heart of every disciple of Jesus. We who know the Lord should be looking for ways in our lives to serve him. At the time of Christ, the church was not yet established. But today, God's established institution is his church. And, and God expects believers to be a part of a local body of the church that we may effectively apply our gifts within it towards one another. He also uses local bodies of believers in the evangelism of their local areas and in sending others around the world. And so it is incumbent upon believers to serve God individually and adjoin themselves to a corporate body as well that they may serve more effectively together. God is worthy and he's deserving of our service. We see there that there is Martha serving the Lord. And while Martha serves in this way, we see also that Mary is there as well. She also serves the Lord through an incredible expression of her love. And in verse 3, we read this expression. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here is Mary, who's presumably standing nearby, or perhaps you know, she's part of the service of the meal, when she does, all of a sudden she approaches Jesus and does a most amazing thing. She takes a flask that's made out of alabaster and it's full of ointment. John tells us it's made from pure nard. She, she breaks that flask and she pours it on Jesus. Now, as we said, that ointment or that perfume was made from pure nard. And I want to focus, first of all, on the pure, and then we'll talk about the nard part in just a second. Pure means it's not diluted. There's nothing else in there. There's no fillers. It's, it's, it's exactly what it says. And that's important because of what it is. Now, nard 
uh, is an aromatic herb that's grown in the Himalayas in northern India. That ointment is made from the stem and the roots of that plant. And so, especially here in this time, to get pure nard in that quantity, I mean, it has to be secured from that area in the mountains where it grows, and then it has to be carried on camelback through many miles of mountain passes. And so, as you might imagine then, for that reason, it's a very expensive thing to acquire. Mary has in her possession what we are told is a pound. Now, this is the Roman pound, which is somewhere around 12 ounces of liquid. That really is a large amount of perfume. And we will see in a minute more on this, uh, but you could probably say that this was roughly worth, uh, it, it is worth roughly an entire year's worth of wages, and it was probably, you could say then, uh, a good portion of Mary's net worth as a person, the stuff that she owned. Added to the worth of just the ointment is the flask in which it was stored, made from the, the alabaster. However, in nothing but all-in prolific love, Mary gave all of it to Jesus in an act of service. And her act that she served Jesus with is not unlike King David, the greatest human king of Israel, in 2 Samuel 24, 24, when he said, but the king said to Aaron, sorry, <laughs> Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Matthew and Mark record that Mary poured this flask of ointment on Jesus' head, while John records that she poured it on Jesus' feet. Now, this doesn't present us with any conflict because, as we've already said, there's about 12 ounces of this in there. And so what we gather is she started at Jesus' head, he's reclined, right, with his feet out behind him, and she poured it all down the body of Jesus, ending in his feet. She then further engages in selfless service. We read, we read there uh, that she loosened her hair, letting it down, and began to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. The letting down of her hair would have been seen as a severe breach of societal norms and accepted customs. It was not something that women did. And then also, touching someone's feet was seen as extremely degrading and a job reserved for the lowest of the low. And you should go ahead and keep that part in your mind as we get into John chapter 13 at the Last Supper. But Mary was given to serving Jesus with everything that she was. She anointed him and served him, expressing her deepest love and devotion. And to her, no monetary cost was too high. No risk of shame was too great. She would give unto her Lord the honor and glory due his name. And as she does so, we read a very vivid detail recorded and recalled by an eyewitness to what happened. And we understand that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. By his Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us that he carried along the biblical authors to record all of these things he would have us to know. At the same time, by his sovereign work, he uses these personal experiences and their own memories to bring these things up to have them to record. And here, at the end of verse 3, you have a very personal note that John records there. He says there, um, 
that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's a very uh, core memory, it seems, to John, right? That he recalls that night. I mean, how could you not know that that, what had happened there? You have 12 ounces of this being poured out in, in this room, in this home. The effects of Mary's service lingered long after that act of service was performed. And undoubtedly, those who were in attendance carried even that fragrance with them on their clothing as they left from the home. John certainly never forgot it. He vividly remembered the effect it had on the room. So what we see here is Mary serving Jesus, her Lord, the one in whom she has placed her faith out of expression of love. And that act of service left an impression on other people. And and just by way of a side note, whenever we do serve the Lord... That service to God does leave an impression. Whether you know it or not, your acts of service in love to the Lord, they send a message to those around you. Whether they be the people you live with, the people in your church, the people in your community, the things that you do for the Lord leave an impression on the people who observe them. Now, if we seek to serve that we may gain some sort of recognition. Well, I want to leave an impression on people, so I'm going to serve the Lord just so people will look at me. I would argue you're probably not serving the Lord, okay? But, and it may, that may handicap the effect that we see on that, or we may see a very limited range because, hey, we, we're going to get what we wanted out of that. People noticed, right? But God can take our acts of total and complete service and multiply them beyond our wildest imagination. Certainly, Mary's act of service had a far greater impact than she imagined it might. And the longer you serve the Lord, the more you'll probably see that in your life. I, I, just, I think of a couple weeks ago, we were down visiting my parents, um, and after church, I was stopped by somebody who used to be in our youth group when I was a youth pastor in South Carolina, and he began to tell me this, I've never forgotten something you said. And he went off and listed something I had said in a youth group lesson. I just, I, 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 we were talking later, I just, I just looked at him, you know. I was like, well, you remember that, you know. I barely remember that, you know. And it's, one of those, it's a very humbling experience that here we are, we're serving the Lord, and you never know how God's going to use those things in the life of somebody else. And here, Mary did this, performed this act of service, not to be seen by other people, but out of a heart of love and devotion to Jesus. And we see the impact that it has on the lives of those who are there and, and further down the road. And we also must understand that there was also those that would detract from what was done. Wherever you find people who love and serve the Lord, you're going to find those who want nothing to do with Him. That is the contrast that takes place in our world today. It hasn't changed since the time of John. And here, in verses 4 through 8, John shows us not only is there this beautiful expression of love, but there's beratement that comes from selfishness by others. In verses 4 through 6, we see the selfish interests that are expressed. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said... Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. John now shows us the glaring contrast between Mary's act of selfless service and Judas Iscariot's own personal self-interest. 
Judas's betrayal of Jesus was something so shocking and so revolting that he, even in this account, by the way, is already identified as the coming betrayer of Jesus. You notice that little note that John put in there, right? This is the one, by the way, who's going to betray Jesus. Now, as you look at the words of the scripture, as you look at the gospels that are presented, chronologically, this is, these are the first words that are ever spoken by Judas that are recorded for us to read. Okay, um, We don't have anything before this. We're going to have a few things that come after this. But all throughout the Gospels, these are the first words of Judas that are recorded in Scripture. And they do not paint a pretty picture at all of who Judas is. Here he is, observing Mary's act of service and gift of love to Jesus. But what he is doing is measuring it purely for its monetary value. He doesn't see what's going on. He sees the dollars being poured out of the bottle, in a way of speaking. The tenor of his statement is this, what a waste, right? I love the way one author put it. He said, the selfish person cannot understand the unselfish individual. It just doesn't happen. Judas, by this time, had walked with Jesus for three years He had been called by Jesus to place personal faith in who he is, yet Judas has not done this. In fact, what Judas has done is he's taken stock of the situation, and he began to understand what it meant for him. Jesus had not overthrown the Roman government, as many people had hoped he would do. He had not become the political Messiah, and in fact had refused to do so. And now, he had angered the religious leadership so much, they intended to kill him. In fact, they had just spent time in the city of Ephraim, away from Jerusalem, because of what was going on in Jerusalem. And so seeing all of this, Judas begins to realize, I need to get something out of this arrangement. I've spent three years of my life given to Jesus, I should get something out of this. This is the path, by the way, of unbelief. There are those who are exposed to the truth of the gospel. They may even pretend to believe that truth as long as there's something in it for them. They will make every effort then to benefit themselves by God's work. And yet, they disguise it as selfless service. You see here, Judas certainly did, right? He doesn't say, we should have sold this so we could all get paid, right? What does he say? We should have sold this for 300 denarii so we could give it to the poor, right? We need to help the poor and the destitute people. Now, we would probably agree that people need to be helped, but that's not why Judas was saying that. He bemoaned the fact that Mary had performed such an act when if she had just sold the perfume, they could have done so much more with the money. It was worth 300 denarii. Now that comes out roughly to one year's wages because the average worker was paid one denarius a day for his labor. So you add in all of the, the religious days and things they didn't, you know, days they didn't work, and you come up to roughly 300 denarii would be a year's wages. And it's interesting to note that Judas seems to be a master at making his case and his deception. Because look at what we read in Matthew chapter 26, verses 8 and 9. And when the disciples saw it, 
They were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Or Mark, in Mark 14, says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the, the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now, we're not told, nor is important, who else joined Judas, but I think it's interesting to note what the other Gospels say here. That they, it was more than just Judas, it seems, began to say these things. However, the point that John is making here, he's focused on Judas and his heart attitude as the ringleader of these things. He was not interested in the exaltation and, of Jesus and selfless service to his kingdom. He was only interested in serving his own interests. You see, Judas was the treasurer of the group. He was the keeper of the money bag. And so the funds that they received for their, their, their work of ministry that they had devoted themselves to be with Jesus were guarded by him. We learn here that Judas was dishonest. He was embezzling the funds for his own use. The word John uses here to describe Judas is thief. Now that Greek word is the word kleptos. Maybe you recognize that word because we derive a word in English from it called kleptomaniac, right? Someone who is given to stealing. That's exactly what the core of the word is in Greek. Judas, who should have been expected to be defined by his devotion to Jesus as a disciple, was instead defined by his sin. Why? Because he never placed his faith in Jesus. He was a thrill seeker, interested only in his own agenda, And when that was not being fulfilled, he began to seek to manipulate the circumstances in an attempt to get what he wanted. And the result is this ugly display of selfishness that takes place right here at this table. Jesus will not let this go unchecked and, in fact, explains what has happened for the benefit of all. Because though Judas expresses his selfishness, we also see then the service of Mary defended in verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I don't know about you, but I, I feel bad for Mary. Right Here she is. She's expressed such love and devotion to Jesus, and now people are berating her for what she has done. Jesus does not let this berating behavior stand unchallenged. In fact, he calls for a stop to it with a simple command. He says, leave her alone. He calls for Judas and the others to cease what they're doing because Mary has kept this perfume in in anticipation of his burial. And here and now, she had anointed him almost an entire week before that event was to take place. Now, Over the years, some have suggested that what Mary had in her possession was some perfume that was left over from her brother's own death. And so, you know, having not used it all, now she brought it to serve Jesus. But that is not the sense of what has happened here at all. Okay, this is not Mary saying, well, I don't have anything else to do with this. I guess I'll bring it to Jesus. Instead, Mary has given her best to Jesus and communicated what she believed about him. She, a disciple of Jesus, believed in who Jesus is. She also had come to realize the truth 
of what he said. I, I think that what this passage communicates here is, is what does Mary believe in her heart about Jesus? Because Jesus has not hid from people what his purpose is, to seek and to save the lost. He's even told his disciples that he would die. And we see that they don't often believe him when he says that. You remember that passage where Jesus is talking to his closest disciples about his coming death? And Peter says, you're not going to do that in so many words, right? And that's the passage where Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, right? Because he's trying to show them why he came. And what Mary shows here is she understands the necessity of his coming death. Her act here pointed ahead towards the coming burial of his body in the tomb following his death on the cross. And I think it's interesting, as I read uh, some commentators this week on these things, one of them pointed out, you notice all the people who are around the cross and the tomb at the death of Jesus. You know who you won't find recorded there? Mary. And and you wonder that, right? I mean, they were so close, why don't you find her there? I I tend to agree with what this author said. You don't find her there because she believed that Jesus was going to rise again. She believed what he said. He had just resurrected her brother and said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. She believed in who Jesus is. And so believing in what Jesus would do, that he would die and rise again, she anointed him here in this act of service. She has here, she is here a wonderful testament of belief in Jesus and the love that is then poured out from that belief. You see, when you place your faith in Jesus, you are given a love that you can never manufacture on your own. When, God, when Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind, another is like unto it that you love your neighbor as yourself, he is not calling on us to well up some love for God within ourselves and for other people. Because what, what John later records in his letter is that we love him because he first loved us. What God does in salvation is he begins to grow that love in us for him and for others. It's a love that you and I can't manufacture on our own. It has to come from God. He has to do that work in our hearts and our lives. It is a love for God and others beyond compare. It is a love that brings about a selfless act such as this. Judas here used the poor as his thinly veiled excuse for such a selfish remark. And Jesus corrects this thinking also. Jesus says there in verse 8 that the poor are always present. Now, Jesus is not here belittling the poor or downplaying the need to minister to those in such a state. The law of God is filled with the way that that God wanted his people to to minister to those people. We see uh, that, that the church and the way they minister to the poor, even here in the New Testament. But what he is doing here is he's in, he is challenging the priorities that one carries. What Jesus says here is he's not always going to be present in person. And so Mary had once again, as is said in Luke 10, chosen the good portion, ministering to Jesus who would soon die, rise, and eventually ascend to the Father. And I want you to note here that with this, Judas now stands even at his own crossroads. You see what's What's expressed by Judas, you see the heart that's coming out of a guy who's given three years of his life to Jesus, has not 
seen who Jesus is or, or has and, and hasn't chosen to believe in him. And he, he, he speaks this out of selfishness and sin, and Jesus calls him out on it. He convicts him of that sin. He stands again at that crossroads. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to admit that you were wrong and I should have seen this, or are you going to continue in your sin? Now, as John has already told you, so I'm not telling you anything he didn't say, he's not going to choose to follow Jesus. He's going to choose to continue to reject Jesus and seek to get his own way out of these things. And now John shares then others who have developed a hatred of Jesus. You see, while Mary shows this great expression of love for Jesus in her belief of him, and Judas shows these seeds of hatred that are sown in his own heart, now John points us again to others who, who hate Jesus and that broadening hatred there. In, verses, in verse 9, we see then the curious crowds that begin to assemble. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Jerusalem is filling up with people in anticipation of the Passover. And we saw at the end of chapter 11 that they wondered if Jesus would come. And now word reaches the crowds that Jesus is in Bethany. And so people make their way, and they would come probably either from, straight from Jerusalem, or even if there were those on their way to Jerusalem who had heard that, because Bethany is, is a little under two miles away from the city of Jerusalem. Now the word Jews that John uses here does not refer to the hostile leadership, but to the common people as he sometimes uses it. And they had come to see Jesus and also Lazarus. The word of Lazarus' resurrection had unsurprisingly spread. Uh, let me just put it this way. If you heard a guy had been dead for four days and raised, you'd probably want to meet him too, right? You'd probably have some questions for a guy like that. You want to see what's going on. And now Jesus, the one who raised him, is there as well. Now these people who are coming more, are more of the, the thrill seekers, you know, they don't openly reject Jesus, but John also does not confirm here that all of these people who were coming were placing personal belief in who Jesus is as the Savior. We do know that there were some who would accept and believe on him as evidenced by the following verses, because verses 10 and 11 show us not only the crowds that were, the curious crowds that were gathering, but the contemptuous leaders who also gathered. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The religious leadership now expands their plans of murder to include not just Jesus, but Lazarus. It's interesting, right? Why would you want to kill this guy who's already been dead? Well, because what he presents to them is a problem they can't deny, the evidence of who Jesus is. His resurrection was causing them no small number of problems and embarrassment. They had problems because many believed on Jesus because of Lazarus' resurrection. The people were observing the great, this great sign that Jesus did, and they were recognizing Jesus' power and his identity and his authority. As we saw in our last message, these religious leaders feared the loss of their power and their influence and their vaunted position. They suffered great embarrassment because of these things. And so now they're seeking to bury the evidence, literally, right? 
as they seek to put him to death. But there's another piece here that causes great embarrassment because of their own erroneous beliefs. We're told here by John that this was the chief priests who were seeking Lazarus' death. And when John refers to the chief priests, he's referring to the Sadducees. Now, if you know anything about the theology of the Sadducees, they don't believe in resurrection. And guess what you have in Lazarus? You have a guy who's been resurrected. That causes quite the theological conundrum. Do we change our beliefs or do we bury the evidence, right? And what did they choose? Well, we're just going to kill him again, right? And I wonder, right, without being sacrilegious, they think, we'll see if he'll do it again, right? Because in their minds, this can't stand. Their hatred for Jesus leads them into plotting other heinous crimes because Lazarus' resurrection was a personal affront to them. And so, as the events of the Passion Week begin, we are reminded once again of the status of the nation regarding its deliverer. Some embrace him for who he is, the Savior. Others see him as some political Messiah. Others reject him outright. Those who should have known the scriptures, the religious leaders of Israel, are blinded by their own willful self-righteousness and sin. One within Jesus' own chosen group of 12 is interested only in himself and his personal gains. While Mary exemplifies for us the belief and trust in Jesus that displays itself in selfless love. Love for God is expressed by those who believe in him by their acts of obedience and worship. Neutrality is impossible when it comes to Jesus. You either believe on him or you don't. You either embrace him or you reject him. You either trust him exclusively or you spend eternity separated from him. If you're trying to improve your behavior so that you'll feel more accepted by God, stop. If you're trying to perform some action so you can be let into the kingdom of God, stop. The only hope you have is complete and total trust in Jesus. Jesus came to offer you his exchange, his righteousness for your sinfulness. His gracious act of love satisfies the holiness and justice of God. And only God can meet God's standards, and only God did in Jesus Christ. Understand that attendance at a church service Acts of of goodwill and nature towards others does not entitle you to heaven. Only trust in Jesus will graciously give you entrance into eternity. Beyond that, the life of a disciple, one who has placed faith in Jesus, is a life of change. It is a life in which we experience the incredible transformation of God. It is not an easy life, and it isn't a perfect life but it should be a life in which we experience the grace, conviction, and power of God regularly. And that's only possible, though, if we submit, continue to submit ourselves to God. So if you know Jesus as your Savior, I encourage you to live for the glory of his kingdom today and express your love to him through obedience to him.
And whatever that is that God is calling you to today. Father, we thank you for the word of God and its power to change our lives. We thank you that you have preserved these things for us to read today. And we thank you that you haven't left us on our own, but you have given your Holy Spirit to open the word of God to us, to illumine us, to see these things. We thank you for the conviction that you bring into our hearts. Where we must admit that conviction is not a comfortable thing, but is a necessary thing. And it is one of the greatest expressions of love that you can show towards us. That you don't let us get away with our sin, that you don't let us continue in it, but you show us that sin and you show us who you are. I pray that today you would do your work in our hearts. Lord, I don't know where people are who have come in today. I don't know what they're wrestling with spiritually, whether they're wrestling with their eternity or something that, that they have just squirreled away in their heart and refused to give to you. Lord, I pray that you would dig those things out today, that you would make us humble before you to make those things right and take those steps of faith in you. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts individually that we may see your work done in this uh, corporate body at Beaverton Baptist Church to shine as a light of the gospel and a place where believers are edified and discipled for your kingdom. We pray that you would bring us back tonight to worship you as we uh, hear from the fries tonight. May we give uh, glory to you for the work that you have done in Portugal through them. And may you again challenge us with your word as we enter this place again tonight. In your name we pray. Amen.